The Puritans often get a bad rap, generally characterized as dour, legalistic, and obsessed with sin and punishment. But despite being so prevalent, such a view isn't actually all that accurate. In short, there's a lot more to the Puritans than you might think. Today I'm talking to Tim Cooper, a church historian who spent his professional life studying one of the most important Puritans of the 17th century, Richard Baxter. We dive into the fascinating history behind Baxter's rise to prominence in his own day, explore his unique approach to pastoral ministry, and discuss what lessons modern Christians, especially church leaders, can learn from his example today. Let's get started. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. It's a pleasure, mate. Great to talk to you about Richard Baxter. So you're a well-known Puritan scholar, uh, someone who spent a lot of time getting to know a group of Christian leaders and thinkers and pastors from history who often, I think I'd have to say, get a bad rap a little bit. They're not, they're not necessarily the, uh, in, in the way that they're described, always given a super positive uh, light. So I'm curious if you could explain a little bit how you got into studying uh, the Puritans. Well, look, Matt, to be honest, it was it was just providential. Uh, Richard Baxter was such a good choice for a PhD topic, uh, but I really can't <laughs> claim any any credit for it. I, I, I was here in New Zealand. I, I just wanted to do a PhD in history. I was interested in the Reformation, and I went to the lecturer who might supervise something on the Reformation, and he had Richard Baxter's unpublished letters and papers on seven microfilm reels and he pointed at those and he said well what about Richard Baxter and I did uh, just the the slightest bit of reading about Richard Baxter and I thought oh well why not Uh, (laughs) and I launched in Uh, so you know it, it didn't come out of this deep love of the Puritans or even a great awareness of the Puritans Uh, It was the suggestion of my supervisor, but what a great suggestion, because you're right about the Puritans. Uh, I mean, who wants to be called a Puritan? So clearly, somehow, it's a bad word. But these are great men and women uh, who have real depth and weight, uh, who take God seriously, who take faith seriously, who take heaven and eternity seriously take everything seriously. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in an age of uh, comfort and entertainment and celebrities, I think we can learn something from, from the Puritans. So, you know, looking back, I had no idea. I, I, you know, I'd love to say this was my choice and it was mm. a great choice. It was a great choice, but it really had little to do with me. Uh, this is, uh, it's changed my life and I'm yeah. just grateful to God that uh, that my supervisor had had those reels of microfilm. I really am. Well, so I want to jump into that that particular topic right now. Before we keep going, you, you've said a couple times microfilm, and for maybe for the younger listeners right now who are who are wondering <laughs> what you're talking about, explain explain what that was and and how you use those. Oh, I'm showing my age, of course. Your yeah, <laughs> microfilm, this obsolete technology. Uh, this is literally a, a roll of film like imagine a, a movie reel uh, but instead of individual frames of moving images it's individual frames of of photographs of original documents hmm. so uh, and hundreds and hundreds and thousands on each each reel I mean it should have been a, a clue to me as to how much I was taking on 
that that there were seven reels of unpublished material. So uh, that was is, just Baxter, seven yeah, reels. Yeah, all, all Baxter. Uh, his letters, he left behind 1,200 letters, either to or from him, but uh, lots of unpublished works that, that didn't get uh, into print. Uh, and and copies of some published ones, the the mm. original manuscripts. So it's 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 deep archival stuff sitting there on one reel that you put on what was called a microfilm reader, and you and you go back and forward across the film. But I'm sorry to throw in that uh, that that reference without <laughs> realizing. My apologies. So, so so then you're saying though that Baxter was your for, first uh, encounter with the Puritans as a whole. Is that mm-hmm. true? Yeah, that's true. And and how is it that your you know PhD advisor or whoever this this uh, person was who kind of got you on to Baxter? What was the history there? How how did he or she know about Baxter and the Puritans? And uh, think that would yeah. be a good good horse of study for you. Yeah, good question. So Baxter's just an important figure in seventeenth century English history. Uh, everything. Uh, religion is so important to to the 17th century, and and historians of 17th century England are well used to dealing with religious ideas and religious figures. Uh, you have to, uh, you can't disentangle religion from everything else. Uh, Baxter uh, wrote a very long autobiography. Uh, I mean, a lot of his many books were very long, and this was one of them. And that's an important historical document for the 17th century because he he tries to explain uh, uh, how things went wrong for mm. for him and his colleagues in the 17th century. So he's a he's an important historical figure for anyone, uh, and that's why uh, my supervisor had those microfilm reels. The the strange thing, of course, is that he never used them. Uh, he very quickly moved to the UK to t- take up a role there, and he left me the microfilm reels, which I still have. Uh, so he never actually did the work on Baxter that he was planning, but I've mm. done a whole lot. Yeah, wow. So then maybe for, give us a little bit of an overview of Baxter's life. You've given us uh, the general time frame. He lived in the, the 17th century but help us understand a little bit more about uh, his historical context and the broad contours of his life and ministry. Good one. Uh, so, Matt, this is really interesting. I mean, the 17th century is is fascinating, and Baxter lived through it all. So he was born in 1615, and he died in 1691. Uh, throughout the 17th century, there was a huge upheaval. Uh, there was King Charles I, uh, an Archbishop William Lord, uh, who remodelled the Church of England in a way that looked disturbingly Catholic to a Protestant nation. And the Puritans, of course, were the most Protestant of all. Uh, so they they created a lot of political instability that gave rise to civil war in the 1640s uh, and war between the three kingdoms of Scotland, England and Ireland. And out of that, in 1649, the king was executed. And for 11 years, uh, England was a republic. Uh, And uh, uh, the big name there, of course, uh, is Oliver Cromwell. Um, Then in 1660, everything was reversed. And uh, the monarchy was restored. The bishops of the Church of England were restored. Uh, The Puritans, who had been in a position of influence through those years, were ejected from the Church of England and then ushered in 30 years of persecution uh, where, where, where Puritans or nonconformists as they were called uh, were not allowed to teach in schools, were not allowed to minister in churches. 
Uh, and so Baxter lived through all of that, and he also was a key player in some of those events. So when there were negotiations in 1663 to 61 between leading uh, Puritan figures within the Church of England and the uh, bishops who are newly restored, Baxter's one of those key players in there. Mm. So, uh, you know, he he's he's a he's a very effective minister in his parish of Kidderminster through those years of republic, uh, through the 1640s and, and 50s. Uh, he's a prolific author. He wrote around 140 books in the course of his life. Some you're always pleased to discover are really quite short, but most are very long so he was he was just prodigious uh he was he was in closely involved uh important as a as a, a leading figure and important as a pastor uh, which of course makes the reformed pastor uh, one of his most important books mm. so in the era of the republic uh when england did not have a king uh, could you describe what the church of england was like what what was the church how did it function then? You said it was sort of a, a golden age for the Puritans. Uh, was there a centralized church, uh, or was it sort of diffuse where different congregations could kind of do their own things? Yeah, good question. So you you, you need to distinguish between the church as it is on the ground and the church as it is in law. Uh, the church as it is in law was disestablished. The church, as it is on the ground, carried on, um, but without uh, without a religious settlement approved by Parliament that would take its place. There, there were efforts at settlement, um, and, but they were ramshackle and incomplete. Uh, there was there was an attempt to bring in Presbyterianism, but that took root only in a few locations, such as London and Lancashire. Otherwise, um, there was a great deal of freedom to experiment. And Baxter worked this out. So there was there was no national directive. There was no national settlement to say this is how things are going to be done. So Baxter took his chance in his local parish and with his surrounding ministers to adapt his pastoral ministry to what he felt was the best and most scriptural way of going about it. So uh, there was a lot of a lot of freedom because the bishops, for one thing, had been disestablished mm. uh, they were in hiding or lying low um, and so there was no one really to tell Baxter what to do so he did his own thing yeah uh, with great success well and, and so I think you're referring to the and I'm not even sure I can pronounce this so you might have to help me with this the Worcestershire Association uh, and that was a, a collection of, of local ministers who kind of banded together is that right yeah. So, uh, yes. Now that's that's pretty good approximation. Uh, the Worcestershire <laughs> is how I'd say it, but of course I've got a New Zealand accent. So who can say who's right? The Worcestershire Association. Yeah. So Baxter, Baxter believed that the the pastor in his congregation was the leading figure who was had oversight of. Uh, the souls within that congregation, uh, and and not a not a bishop who who existed in a city you know tens hundreds of miles away, uh, with oversight over thousands and thousands of souls. So Baxter thought of himself as the bishop in his congregation, but that didn't mean that he wanted to be isolated and on his own. He wanted to provide a way, a formal way of connecting with 
his fellow ministers in neighbouring parishes throughout the county of Worcestershire. So he basically invited them uh, to a meeting once a month, and they would all travel to the same place together. They would discuss difficult challenges that they were facing in their ministry, uh, difficult cases of people who might have fallen into sin, and uh, and also discuss you know, big ideas and, and talk theology. So it's like, I don't know if you have the phrase in the United States, Matt, of a minister's fraternal, mm. but it's uh, it's a bit like a minister's fraternal. Um, yeah. Baxter, ba- this is Baxter's idea to bring about, uh, and, and he did it. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I think there's, there's similar things in the U.S. and I'm sure abroad, uh, with these kind of loose networks of churches, perhaps, that would kind of approximate yeah. what he was going for here. Mm-hmm. So then speak a little bit to the Reformed pastor, this this really large work that he wrote. You've referenced it a couple times. Uh, what was he getting at in this book, and what was he trying to accomplish? Yeah, good questions. So he wrote the book for um, for one of these meetings. So they, they planned to gather for a day, and, and Baxter, uh, uh, it seems, because uh, it's, it's a very long book, was, was going to uh, speak to them about these aspects of pastoral ministry that they were agreeing to so as as Baxter met with these ministers it wasn't just uh, you know month by month and nothing much changed they also agreed on a common way of working so that any any pastor in that association would go about their ministry in the same way and one of the important early convictions was that every pastor should know every person individually in his care uh, and and as as the years went on through the 1650s, Baxter himself latched onto a method of making that happen. So he he devised uh, a process whereby all of the families in his parish who wanted to do this would come to him once a year, and he would examine them on the faith. He would he would ask them questions. He would see where they were at. He would test their understanding. He would he would ask how they're going pastorally. He would uh, respond to the issues and concerns that they had. And and Baxter found that to be very effective, and and wanted to share that with his fellow ministers. So he encouraged them towards the same practice. And this this big day, this gathering in December of 1655, was designed to really move them along towards embracing that. As it happens, he was sick on the day, uh, but still he got their agreement, and and in 1656 they published their agreement to go about their work in this way. And in the same year, Baxter published the reformed pastor which which really lays out his prescription for how pastoral ministry should be done uh, in the context of england in the 1650s hmm. so was that idea of you know personally visiting with congregants on uh, at least an annual basis and kind of having that one-on-one time with them was that a a new or kind of a revolutionary idea for his time and and especially if so what was behind that conviction that that was a key part of pastoral ministry? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Matt. So it's it's both new and old. Uh, it's old in the sense that that uh, Baxter, like all the Puritans, knew his Bible back to front, was very familiar with Acts twenty twenty, where where Paul is talking to the elders at Ephesus, and he reminds them about his ministry among them, and he talks of going house to house. 
and uh, also he he leaves the elders uh, at Ephesus with the command to take care of yourselves and of all the flock. So Baxter uh, was animated by that verse, take take care unto yourselves and unto all the flock. And, and he understood all the flock to mean all the flock, not just some, but all individually and going house to house. So actually, not just a, you know, like a church meeting on a Sunday, that, that, was, that was great, but not sufficient in itself. He took it from Paul that pastors should also go from house to house, uh, visit individually with families and have those kind of intimate, personal, deep conversations and really know their people know who's in their church hmm. well that that's certainly revolutionary in in mid 17th century england uh, p- partly because as i've mentioned that the existing model had been that you had a bishop of a diocese and a diocese could 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 have um, hundreds of thousands of people in it uh well they did and i mean many many it's inconceivable that any bishop in that framework could know individually everyone under their care. So Baxter felt that was hopelessly inadequate and that pastoral care needed to be done and and overseen at the level of the local congregation. So, um, but boy, meeting individually, that was new. No no one did that. Mm. That, that, that was Baxter's determination. And, uh, you know, because it came at a cost. He, he, he devoted two days a week, he and his assistant, from morning till evening, and, and families would come hour by hour. And, 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 you know, don't think that the 17th century was sort of any less busy than, than our age. I mean, the Puritans were nothing if not active and busy. But Baxter devoted two days out of every week so that he could get through every family uh, in his parish in, in each year. So, yeah, old, drawn from Acts 20, knew no one had applied it like that mm, yeah and you said that uh earlier that families would sort of volunteer they had to agree to do this and then they would come to him and, and i imagine some people listening right now might think man that sounds kind of intense to volunteer to go talk to my pastor and not just maybe share my struggles but to actually you, you seem to suggest there was a, a level of testing and poking and prodding and kind mm. of ascertaining mm-hmm. how how mm. they are doing in the faith uh, what what were those meetings like, and and what would compel a, a normal congregant at that time to go do that? Yeah, so uh, uh, perhaps I'll start with a general context uh, for you, because you need to imagine an English parish. Uh, so an English parish like Kidderminster might have around two thousand people in it, um, and it's a mixed bag, right? So everyone who's born in England is baptized and is considered a christian and a member of the church and therefore a member of the parish but as you will appreciate not not everyone lives up to that uh so you know how what how what do you do with that and baxter was so against the the separatists who said this is the, the who what this is a such a mixed bag. It, it's not pleasing to God. We need to separate and form our own pure congregations. Baxter really, really, really disliked that instinct, but he wanted to reform the parish that he was in, and and he did that. So, um, so in a, in a mixed bag parish, where I mean, we would have to say certainly not everyone is a Christian. 
um, only it was important to Baxter that only those who consented to this who uh, were the ones that he worked with, and a, a, basically around a third of the parish consented to this. Um, and that was as a result of uh, nearly a decade of his pastoral ministry and his preaching. So he, he basically turned the town around. This was not promising Puritan territory. Uh, Kidderminster was, um, when he came, uh, uh, utterly uninspiring uh, in terms of any sort of solid Christianity. Um, there, there might have been one godly family in every street, he says. Uh, well, uh, w before long, uh, people were converting in droves. And, uh, you know, he used to keep count, he says, of his early converts. But uh, he lost count. Uh, the church filled up. They had to put more seating in it. Um, and so out of that, uh, that whole package, really, um, I think people were drawn to take part in this. And, he, you know, Baxter, I think, must have been a compelling figure for, for them to do this. But he knew that he had to do it very carefully. So uh, near the end of the book, he gives very clear practical guidance on how you conduct these sessions so as to make sure that people feel comfortable, that, 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 that you're not out to get them or mm. trip them up or trap them in what they don't know. Um, he he's a he's a pastor. I mean, he's he's an exemplary pastor. He's trying to find a mechanism to be pastoral, um, and and the fact that he pulled it off really is remarkable. Mm. I think it's testament to his uh, effectiveness. He must have handled those sessions very well. Yeah. He he must have been good at these conversations because if he wasn't, word would get out and no one would come. Yeah, yeah. So our listeners will know that you've recently. Uh, edited and abridged uh, a, a version of the Reformed Pastor with Crossway. And at one point early on in the book, you, you talk about the book's real title. And I found that fascinating and, and kind of, I didn't know about this beforehand. Can you explain what you mean by that and, and what the significance of that real title was? Yeah, sure. So its 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 formal title is Gildas Salvianus. Uh, so Gildas Salvianus, colon, the reformed pastor and you'd think that those two words were a translation of the reformed pastor but they're not <laughs> uh, they refer to two famous priests in church history uh, gildas and Salvianus, who were known for having spoken hard truths to their fellow priests they, they had a reputation for 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 saying what needed to be said to confront their their fellow priests uh, to improve their game. And and Baxter put those two names together. It's like he's saying, I am Gildas Silvianus. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm picking up that tradition. I'm, I'm speaking hard truths. Because it is a, it is a very challenging book uh, for ministers and pastors and church leaders to read. He lifts the bar. He, he does not accept... Uh, indifference. Uh, he does not accept poor excuses. He he presents a very high vision of what pastors should be doing for the salvation of souls. And he writes with a real urgency because, as I've said earlier, the, for the Puritans, souls matter. Souls are eternal. Uh, you know, t t eternity is, is just seconds away. So he, he has this enormous urgency and 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 even goes so far as in a in a long piece of writing, 
that I've I've condensed obviously and put into two chapters. He 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 makes a confession of the sin of England's pastors. He confesses their sin mm-hmm. uh, quite a way into the book, having having laid out the ideal of what a pastor should be doing. He then confesses that they have not been doing it. And then he goes on to to call on their resolve to change their ways. So it's a very confronting book for pastors, and that's why it has the title that it does. Mm. Uh, he's co-opting that tradition. Yeah. Well, and, and given the intense and exhorting nature of the book, uh, at one point you, you comment that it's almost literally a recipe for burnout. And, and I guess I wonder, in an age when I think, uh, especially today, uh, pastors, many pastors feel a level of burnout. They feel maybe discouraged. They feel like there's a lot of pressures on them and their lives, and yet probably less less esteem for pastors than, than at many times in church history today. Mm-hmm. Um, why is this message of, you know, a call, calling to do perhaps more or to work harder or to have higher standards, why is that still relevant? Is that really what pastors need today? That is a fantastic question, and I, I mean, I just want to acknowledge what you've just said. Uh, being a church pastor is hard work. I've been a church pastor. Uh, I I know how hard it is, and you know, I I think no one can really know how hard it is until they've done it. You know, it's hard in unexpected and surprising ways. It's a very very demanding vocation, and the last the last thing I would want is to impose Baxter on poor, hard-working pastors <laughs> uh, who, who already feel overwhelmed. And, and I, so I think, I, you know, that's a, that's, we have to confront that about the book. Um, it, is, it is extremely demanding in its expectations. And at one point, literally, Baxter says, what, what is a candle made for but to be burned? Uh, so you know he's mm. it's he's calling That's us intense. to be he's calling us to be burned out for God, uh, for ministry for the care of souls, and we do have to be careful with that. So you know I love Baxter, but I can critique him. Um, but what do we do with this? I I don't think it's a call to do more. It's a call to revisit how we do what we do. Uh, and to ask ourselves whether we are providing the individual soul care that our people need. Now, it's, uh, it's, it's challenging, but I, I think it's a challenge we need to hear. It's not a challenge that we need to hear and, and, and beat ourselves up about. That's not helpful. We live in a different age. Uh, at quite a different age. People are much, much more mobile. Uh, there are, there is any number of churches that people can go to. So uh, it's not like we can just pick up what Baxter did and do it for ourselves. But what you get running through the book more than his methodology is his heart. And I think that's inspiring because then you can read Baxter and you can find an ally. You can find someone who says what you're doing is hard and demanding, and I'm expecting a lot, but it's important. It matters. Here's why it matters. Here's why it has this value. Uh, I think the Puritans in general are helpful in that way, uh, in that they speak with a different voice. So Baxter's voice is different. I've modernized his English. Uh, We'll understand it much more easily. Um, But he's still got a different voice, and that's helpful. I think that voice is one that that we need to hear to to reinforce 
and, and help us to galvanize our courage and strength and resilience to carry on. But no one, no one should feel, uh, I hope, uh, overwhelmed by this book or overwhelmed by Baxter or, or feeling a failure to measure up. But that is a real challenge of the book. Mm. Uh, it hasn't stopped me from putting it out there. Um, I think we need to read this book again. I think a new generation of pastors needs to have a way of 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 reading this classic text on what it is to be a pastor, uh, but but with some care. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit. You've kind of alluded to this already that uh, soon after this this, this short lived era of the republic, uh, the the monarchy was reestablished and. The Church of England, as a, a national entity, was uh, reformulated, and then and things changed very quickly for the Puritans and for Baxter in particular. Uh, what impact did that ultimately have on his life and ministry? Huge. Um, see, the 1650s were so encouraging for Baxter. He he saw his parish transformed. He saw other parishes transformed. He worked with his fellow ministers. In other counties, other associations sprang up, like his one. Uh, he'd published his his book. He'd published lots of books. He was he was a best-selling author, uh, uh, you know, a remarkable a remarkably successful author. And and by the end of the 1650s, he he has visions of a reformed nation. Uh, he thinks the the Reformation can be completed if if it can only carry on. But it all comes undone, and it comes undone in large part because of disunity among the Puritans themselves, and that's something he'd been trying to uh, mend throughout the 1650s. Part of the Worcestershire Association is about unity and working together, uh, despite any differences in, in theology. So in, when when it all comes apart, and it comes apart politically as much as anything, England just falls into chaos, and people want stability, and and the and the king is brought back, um, and the Puritans were an important in bringing the king back. Let's mm. understand that. But they brought the king back without placing any constraints on his power, and and the bishops were restored, and and they wanted things the way that they had been, and they had no great interest in the Puritan vision of the Church of England. So uh, the and the terms were very very harsh. Uh, that you you had to agree to everything and uh, that the, the church did basically and say yes I agree with this and Puritans couldn't do that and and because they couldn't do that they they couldn't be ministers in the Church of England hmm. uh, so Baxter Baxter left Kidderminster for London to be involved in this negotiations he never went back he was not allowed to preach again in that church he was not allowed to go back and say goodbye um, in fact, uh, a law came in in the mid-1660s that prevented nonconformist ministers from going within five miles of oh, where wow. they had ministered in the past. And and people were fined, people were imprisoned. Baxter was imprisoned uh, during the this next period. Um, you, he, you know, there were limited, very limited opportunities to preach. So it changes Baxter's life, um, but he, he carries on. And, and he carries on his ministry largely by writing books. Now, it's difficult to get a book licensed to be published in this period, but he manages it. Uh, and he continues to publish a lot of books. Um, uh, but boy, it's, it is a hard life, man. Mm. Uh, it is a hard life and a bitter, 
bitter disappointment. That that was that reversal in sixteen sixty. Baxter never quite recovered. Mm, yeah. Well, maybe as a last question, uh, I wonder if you could speak to the person listening right now. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's just a, a, a layperson who who uh, appreciates history and, and theology uh, and who is interested in Baxter. Now that they've heard you share a little bit about him, but still would have to say they feel a little bit intimidated perhaps by the the thought of digging into a Puritan. They've heard they've heard the scary stories about Puritan writings and and just wonder, could I could I get through that? Why would you say it's worth persevering and and taking a stab at reading the Reformed Pastor? If there is one book in English that every pastor should read, it's the Reformed Pastor. The trouble is, the original is basically unreadable. (laughs) Uh, This edition... It, you, you, it, it'll never get any easier than this, Matt. Hmm. Uh, it's in modern English. It all flows. It's very, very tidy and understandable. And for Baxter, short. Hmm. 30,000 words. Uh, so, and the original, but, the original was how long? Yeah, uh, 160,000 words. Oh, wow. So it, uh, I, have, I have removed most of it. But what I've left behind, and I hope readers will agree with me on this, is the genius of the book at the the core. I, I've I've taken out the repetition. I've taken out the stuff that doesn't matter. I've taken out the tangents. I've taken out long Latin quotes, and and what what's left is what I think Baxter wanted to say. So uh, Baxter, as you've, you you know you can tell from the the microfilm reels from the 140 books, he never shut up. Uh, well, I've kind of sat him down and told him to shut up, and and just tell us, Richard, what do you? What's the essence of what you want to say to us? Mm, yeah. If if I were to get him back today and 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 say what what's your message for us that you were trying to get across in the reform past? Please, please, Richard, say it in far fewer words. This is what I think it is. So uh, here's 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 your chance. Uh, to read the Reformed Pastor, and you will you will get the book. You will get what Baxter had in that whole large book, but you won't have to work nearly so hard for it. I was presenting on Baxter at a pastors' conference a couple of years ago, and, and one of the pastors he told me, you know, I've 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 loved to read the Reformed Pastor. I've tried three times, and I've, <laughs> each time I've 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 not made it. Mm. Uh, well, anyone can make it through this book, and you will get the message that Baxter was trying to get across. Of course, then you've got to sort of live with that message and make it your own, and that's challenging. But at least you know what it is. Mm. And um, it's a message still worth hearing, in part because, you know, it comes out of Acts 20. Acts 20 is still in our Bibles. What are we going to do with it? How are we going to take that call to, to ministry seriously? So I hope pastors who read this book will be uh, challenged, yes, but fortified and encouraged about the value of what they do. And I hope anyone reading this book who's not a pastor will also get an insight into what it is to be a pastor and how to live under and encourage your pastor. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for uh, giving us a little insight into Richard Baxter's life and ministry and and this important book that he wrote. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time today. Good one. Thank you, Matt. I've loved the chat. So thanks thanks for talking about Richard Baxter.
That was Tim Cooper on Richard Baxter. For more, be sure to check out his freshly edited and condensed edition of Baxter's classic work, The Reformed Pastor, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.